Hey, everybody. How's it going? Uh, before we get into the episode, I did want to mention that the audio from this particular episode is not going to be quite as polished or refined as it is in other episodes. You should still be able to understand what everybody's saying, and it should still get the important message across. But there's just a lot of background noise in the eventual recording of what we made, and we did our best to denoise it and to get a lot of that out of there. But it's just, like I said, not quite as polished or refined. So uh, I just wanted to address that. Hopefully it's not too much of a big deal for you. And again, this episode, the topic is super important. And so I hope it doesn't detract too much from what we're talking about. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and on today's episode, I am joined by Jarrett McCourt, Jarrett is someone that I, I didn't know before, so I am uh, excited to have the opportunity to get to know him a little bit on this episode. And uh, he reached out to me, actually, um, saying he's enjoyed the podcast and uh, has an interesting story to his life and thought it would be kind of fun to just sort of talk about it and be open and be honest about some of the struggles he's experienced throughout his life and how um, his path to healing uh, might be beneficial for others to hear. So uh, before we get into the heavier stuff of the episode, I thought we would just start with Jarrett. Who are you? What do you do? Kind of tell us about what your life looks like uh, right now, or maybe just before the coronavirus started. So we can start there. <laughs> sure. Well, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate Absolutely. the chance to get to talk to you. And, I mean, I've loved the podcast for a really long time, and it's on my weekly list of podcasts to listen to. So it's really cool to to sort of be here talking to you right now. Oh, thank you. Um, pre, yeah, of course, pre-corona, um, my life is uh, that of a tuba player. Uh, so the, for the past couple of years, I've been acting principal tuba with the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra, and I also play with the Civic Orchestra of Chicago. So sort of based around Chicago. Um, and then this year, I won the tuba job with the Winnipeg Symphony. So, um, you know, who knows what's going to happen? Uh, going forward, but uh, I, I won the full-time job going forward, um, so that's probably going to become a bigger part of my life at some point. Um, but yeah, basically just playing tuba uh, with as many different groups and with as many different people as I can. Sweet. Uh, do you want to kind of walk us through a little bit of your path of where you studied to kind of ground us a little bit in your background? Yeah, of course. So um, I'm from Canada originally. Uh, from a sort of small town called Windsor, which is the border city of Detroit. Um, so if you guys know where Detroit is, you know where Windsor is. Um, I did my undergrad, uh, small school. I say small school, it's more of a small school of music. It's a pretty big school, but the school of music is pretty small. Um, University of Western Ontario mm-hmm. in London, Ontario, not London, UK. Right. Uh, and then University of Michigan for my master's in tuba. And then after that, I went to New World Symphony, was there for three years. Uh, with several people who have been on the podcast, Ansel Norris, people people that you know, of course. Uh, And uh, after that, um, was had a bit of uh, audition success and that sort of led to be offered a 
one-year contract with the Winnipeg Symphony that was renewed, but then I was also playing this with the Civic Orchestra of Chicago because they play basically once a month, um, and basically just sort of making a full-time job out of a per-service, one-year Winnipeg gig where I play you know, 25 to 30 weeks a year, plus the eight to 10 weeks with the Civic Orchestra, and then that was essentially a full-time job. Um, and then I won the job, like I said, in October, uh, and here we are. Yeah, so that was a lot of traveling. I mean, you told me about it. You said I, I was in Win I'm in Winnipeg, but I live in Chicago, and I thought that was kind of didn't make sense in my head, but it makes a lot more sense now. Yeah, it's a pain. I mean, like uh, so to be candid, the, the orchestra didn't really pay any of my travel. They sort of wanted me to live in Winnipeg and not really have any. Um, basically, just like take the per service work, but there were some weeks where I wouldn't work, and some weeks for multiple weeks on end where I wouldn't have any work. So I would sort of just be there and not make any money. Um, so it really didn't make sense for me to settle in Winnipeg. Um, so I, I didn't have any kind of tra travel stipend either. Uh, so it was a lot of driving. So I actually drove between Chicago and Winnipeg. So for those of you who don't know, that's about 13 and a half wow. an hour drive one way. Um, so I'm based in Chicago with my girlfriend there. Um, and essentially we just like go up to Winnipeg and, and, uh, and play there. Um, and you know, I, I, my dad's a truck driver, so I feel like I can sort of have those like long distance drives <laughs> in my blood. Yeah. And it doesn't really bother me. Like getting in the car at four o'clock in the morning and driving 14 hours, it's kind of just like, you know, I play tuba, I just, it, it makes way more sense for me to put my tubas in the back of the truck instead of putting them right. in, uh, in a plane, you know? So save me the hassle of potentially damaging my instruments. Um, and also saving some money. But I say that, and I also just put like several thousand dollars in my car because of wear and tear. And I'm like, probably would have had to put less money in my car if I would have driven a little less. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's quite the sacrifice i suppose but i mean it it sounds completely normal you know what i mean even though it's like this crazy lifestyle every musician goes yeah that's just like what you got to do sometimes it's it's weird what we think is normal i, th I think right and i just know so many tuba players that just don't work you know and i can't complain when you know i play one week in winnipeg and then i go back down to chicago for a week and then i go back up to winnipeg and then i go back to chicago sort of like driving literally 14 hours a week to go make couple thousand dollars and then that's just sort of part of the job right um so i never really said no to that um and you know every for the past few years every june i would sort of make this like tetris schedule where i would like have like all the best like highest per service weeks in winnipeg where i would sort of put them in and then i would build those around the chicago schedule and also you know play with a bunch of different groups i sort of before this had a bunch of work lined up with various orchestras and I was sort of looking at like all the different states that I filed tax returns in last year, and I was like, dang, really getting around now, you yeah. know, instead of just in Canada. And also, like, dealing with work permits and stuff in the U.S., like, it's been really, like, a challenge uh, sort of getting going, but now I feel like I know a lot of, more about, like, you know, work permits and, like, how to get around and make my life easier with all the travel, but, like, it's just part of part of the part of life, you know. So many of these people that you talk on your to on your freeway philharmonic mm -hmm. um, series, it's like I'm like, yeah, like that, that makes sense. But you talk to someone who's like in business or someone who's uh, in the medical professional profession or something, and uh, they're like, wait, you drive? And I'm like, yeah, that's just sort of what we do. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, not only is winning a job 
a great thing and a wonderful thing. But what does it mean to you in terms of like what your life might look like? And I mean, what is that? What's that feeling like that you've found a thing that could be a full time? You're going to be there doing that thing. It's just that sense of stability, you know, like I could maybe go somewhere and not have to travel much. But, you know, I, I kind of think about it. I might miss the travel. You know, the, the traveling is it sounds kind of a little masochistic, but I do enjoy like going somewhere different like potentially, um, you know, playing with different groups. And I feel like that's really enhanced my ability to, to listen. And like, for example, like the different orchestras that I play with, the trombone sections are very, very different, you know? Um, so I have really, I think, sort of learned to play with different groups um, and playing with these different groups has helped. But like I said, I would definitely like give up my, um, uh, you know, crazy travel schedule for a little instability and sort of people like that. Is that the dog? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping you didn't hear it. Yeah, no. I think it's, it's over it's now. Funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's interesting to me. I mean, it's a lot of, like I said, sacrifice. It's a lot of just like grit and persistence to continue on, right? In the face of this is insane. I'm driving all the time. It's got to wear on you as a person. What was your drive to not to feel like this was the right thing to be doing, even though it's incredibly hard and not feeling like maybe something else is the thing I should be? You know, what I mean, like, what was the drive to stay strong in, in that time? Um, well, it was just kind of like survival in, in a way. I was so I was at New World and at the end of my three years, they offered me a fourth year to stay there. And that's sort of like a bit of a rare thing, especially I think I was maybe like one of the first tuba players that have been offered because they always want to try to get more people in, especially for these like one instrument, uh, you know, right. one person instrument. Right, instrument. right. Um, and I was like, you know, I could stay at New World and sort of bide my time a little bit longer or I could try to piece together a schedule where I could actually have some semblance of a real life, you know? Because New World, I mean, just feels like it's great, but it does not feel like real life. And that, <laughs> especially where we are with my Really, yeah. Like, everything just feels so fake. Um, so, yeah, it was just the the, the drive, uh, like you said, was just it was just survival. I mean, I didn't really think twice about it. You know, I had this offer that would potentially you know pay a lot of the bills in Winnipeg, and then this other offer, this other training orchestra that would potentially allow me to move up from Winnipeg and continue to take auditions and put me somewhere you know in Chicago where I continue to study with. I studied with Gene Recording every like two weeks and just having that type of access to both him and everyone in the CSO um, is invaluable. Yeah. So the situation, even though it was like, you know, I was telling people like, oh, you know, I'm going to drive between Winnipeg and Chicago. It's not that far. It's like 14 hours, you know, one way. Um, for me, it was sort of the best case scenario coming out of uh, New World. Instead of having, you know, for example, it would be great to like play with a 52-week orchestra right out of New World, but like that doesn't happen a whole lot, mm -hmm. um, especially for people coming out of New World. So, for me to be able to leave New World with something, something that like was sort of this piecemeal Tetris kind of full-time job, um, it seemed like a really great situation, despite the fact that I needed to travel a lot. But that's just, like you said, sort of part of the grind. 
What does it feel like? I've always wanted to ask this question. What does it feel like to be a tuba player and there's only one in an orchestra? So the job prospects that are already low for most instruments are incredibly low. Uh, and I'm sure you see the same few or same lot of people at auditions and stuff like that. What's that feeling like? I mean, I, we know what it's like for trumpet, but there's four of us possibly in, in an orchestra. So there's just more opportunity. I mean, is that something that there's that you guys talk about or is it something we just accept and that's what our life is? Like, how do you guys deal with the uh, limited prospects? It's just kind of a slap in the face at the beginning. You know, you sort of get into it and then you kind of just forget about it. Like my, one of my first big auditions was for Cincinnati. And for that audition, they did like a real kind of cattle call. Do trumpet players use that term cattle call or I is that just a tuba thing? Chicago is the only place I've ever heard that does, and they call it a cattle call where they just take everybody, you mean? Okay. Yeah, I didn't know if that was just like a tuba thing or if that was, anyway. So <laughs> for Cincinnati, they took everyone, I think. I mean, like, some people say that there were more resumes, but when I got there, there were 172 players that were applying for this one song. And what made that situation kind of more interesting is that um, it had happened sort of after a long period of drought with no auditions. So the Lyric Opera happened in like 2012, and then Cincinnati didn't happen until uh, May of 2015. So there wasn't really anything big uh, you know, anything kind of full-time outside of anything regional for the better part of three years. And I think that's kind of the big difference between some of these multi-instrument, uh, you know, auditions versus us, is that we could go a long time without having auditions. Fortunately, as I'm kind of like, you know, taking a lot of auditions right now, I just took my, this year I took my like 26th audition as a tuba player, and I think that's a big number for tuba players. And when I tell tuba players that I've taken, that many auditions. Of course, I can take some of these Canadian national auditions because I'm Canadian, right. and I also take auditions in Europe as well. So that's sort of more than the auditions in the US. But, uh, you know, I haven't experienced that drought yet. So I feel like my opinion of this is sort of optimistic because I, you know, I was coming into it right after the drought, but maybe I'll have a little bit more of a sour opinion after, um, <laughs> after all these sort of big jobs are, because like right now, before Corona, there was like four auditions that were scheduled. Uh, big jobs, I mean, LA, St. Louis, were sort of all happening, um, or were supposed to happen, and they're going to happen yeah. at, uh, in the future. But like I said, I think it's just a big difference. You know, with, with trumpet, you you can maybe go a while without having an audition, but after a couple months, there's probably going to be one. And I think with the one instrument thing, it's far more likely that you will run into a situation where you won't have anything for several years. Yeah. yeah. So one of the things that's interesting to me about just the whole orchestral auditioning game or circuit or whatever is we sort of, at least people that are like me, you tell yourself that something like Chicago, San Francisco, New York, that's the end of the line. And that justifies all of the work that's necessary. Like eventually I will audition for and maybe win one of those positions. Right. And so the problem I have is when that opportunity comes up, I've, I've been able to audition for Chicago principal twice. I sent in a tape for New York principal and it didn't get accepted. You know, some of these other jobs, like I may never see an opportunity to have a chance for. So when we are guided by this desire to hit it big, so to speak, and that's the thing that, uh, I guess makes the work valid. Well, 
for tubas, I, I would imagine you guys probably can't think that way because it's just like when somebody's in there, they're in there for that. That's that's your like New York. That guy's in there. You know what I mean? Like, so what's the thing that motivates you guys? I mean, besides wanting a job, if it's not like I choose this orchestra and someday I know I'll have a chance. If, does that question make sense? Of course. Yeah. And I think for me, gosh, you know, the thing that motivates me to play the tuba is sometimes the things I do outside. Because, for example, like I'm a yoga teacher, so I teach yoga on the side, and I also do web design, and I also do all these things that make going back to the tuba like so much more appealing. So, um, for me, potentially having a job that is sort of mid-size uh, is attractive because it would allow me to sort of do all my things that I enjoy on the side. You know, I also work for a mental health crisis hotline, and I've sort of you know, I talk about this Winnipeg Civic Orchestra sort of being like a full-time job, but I also do a bunch of stuff on the side um, that makes that job, that orchestral sort of, you know, track so much more enjoyable. And I really think that, you know, after a, a day of rehearsals, maybe doing a little bit of practicing on the side, nothing makes me want to go back to playing more or to, to practicing, trying to get a bigger job than doing something that's not playing to you know like going to do a yoga class for a teacher that i really respect or uh working on somebody's website trying to like get them um you know trying to get them to the next position using this kind of you know and, yeah. and that's that's really appealing to me so you being someone who does a whole lot of different things uh, i may be getting ahead of myself here but um i i would say that the idea of uh you know, as musicians, I think we can often be limited in our thinking. We can think, I am a trumpet player. That's what I do. That's my value. That's what I can offer. That's what that's what I have to do. But you're breaking that mold then by saying, I play the tuba, but I also do web design, yoga. I work, you know, a mental health crisis hotline. Like, I do all of these different things. And so it, it then, <laughs> for musicians, you know, the job is what guides us and stuff like that. So you must have something else that drives you and helps you make those decisions if you're able to sort of uh, branch out, so to speak. So what do you think is the thing that has caused you to want to branch out that has found fulfillment in these? Like, is there a, an issue of it's a calling or do you feel that uh, your that the job provides you with these other things that you really want to do almost more? Like, what's your relationship with like all of these different things? Mm, that, that's a good question. I mean, so um, <laughs> just like off the bat, I think playing the tuba in an orchestra isn't that difficult. I mean, like, so of course, like being a musician in the orchestra is a difficult thing. But oftentimes, when you guys are doing all these like crazy things, whatever, we either are tasked or have very little to do. So it sort of was born out of when I was at New World, or slightly before, I was like, gosh, I have all this extra mental space to possibly do other things and it was that when i was at michigan i was sort of like i love yoga i really got into yoga they have this great course there you can take as a michigan student um, it's called yoga for performers and it's taught by one of the voice faculty and that's what really sort of like got me into doing yoga. Mm. Let's see like how beneficial it was for like not only my planning but like my mental health my emotional health my physical health everything and then that summer i did my teacher training um, back in Canada. And I realized pretty quickly when I went to New World that I was, you know, able to 
play in the orchestra, but also like pick up a couple of yoga teaching classes on the side. And then, you know, sort of after that, uh, I realized, hey, like I, you know, I used to work at Best Buy when I was in high school. <laughs> so I sort of have, um, I don't know, like I used to work for Geek Squad as well. So like fixing computers and stuff has always sort of been in my wheelhouse. Um, and web design is sort of something that's always interested me. And it's something that people in our field sort of need. Yeah. So I was like, there's a calling for this. And there were people at New World who needed a website. And then I like bought this fancy camera and like started to take pictures. And then there were a ton of people at New World who wanted headshots. And so I just sort of like learned to take headshots and then sort of, you know, I, I realized like, hey, I can take headshots. I can build websites, I can teach yoga. And like all this stuff is making tuba playing so much more appealing because my, you know, being is not centered around just playing tuba. Yeah. So I just think it's so important for people, especially in our profession, where what we do is so all-consuming, to have different things that we do on the side. Because when I was just playing tuba, I would say, you know, I had more dark times than when I was just doing, you know, tuba and also doing other things. Right. Um, and I just, like I said, I just think it's so important to, to have that sort of, like, toolkit of things that you can do to sort of keep your mind in check. Do you think you've always been this way? That what you just described to me is, well, I like web design, like combining these different things that you enjoy doing and then finding a way to how you can help other people do it. And then, of course, it's a lot of work to figure out web design and figure out how to do headshots. You don't just like do it, you know, there's a lot involved. So have you always been someone who will take on that next challenge? Is it something you've learned to develop a, a taste for understanding that it's hard work in the beginning, but you've done it enough to see the results of it? Uh, how have you developed that kind of, we could call it grit, but anything like perseverance like that? Yeah, I saw that you were reading that. Uh, it's a great book. book by Angela Duckworth. It's so good. Oh my gosh. I like go back to it at least once a year and read it. And it's just so digestible. Um, and I think that all this was sort of born out of my tuba playing. Because as a tuba player, particularly in Canada, there are very few, I don't want to say very few, but there are just like, there are a limited number of resources and teachers available to me as, or more available to me as a tuba player coming. You know, so I was in London, which is like kind of a small town, near Toronto, which is like, you know, kind of a bigger town, but like not a lot of tuba players there. There's like a couple, there's a ballet guy, there's an opera guy, there's a symphony guy, a couple of freelance guys. Took a couple lessons with the symphony guy, took a couple lessons with the ballet guy. And then from there, I was like, man, all these people have different opinions and like thoughts and ways that I can improve my playing. So then I was like, okay, well, I'll go to Detroit, and then I'll go to Chicago, and then it just like kept going out from there. And that hunger to get better, you know, sort of like got me to explore, I think, other avenues. I think what I'm trying to say is that my hunger to become a better tuba player sort of like evolved into my hunger to, you know, be the most well-rounded musician and human being that I yeah, that's really, that makes sense. It, it totally makes sense. I think there's also a level of sort of honesty and realness that needs to happen as a res like in that process. Anytime we're going to hunger to get better at something, it needs to be, I believe, from a place of I, I can see it, what ways I am lacking or where I need to put in work or whatever. And oftentimes it's goal oriented. So it's, I would like to be able to play this piece. Well, what's the thing that's stopping me from doing it? And I think oftentimes if we don't stop 
and think honestly about where we are, we send to skip steps, right? So then thinking this and thinking outside of this and outside of the instrument, making these decisions, I think, can come from if we just think it's possible and we're real about, well, I would like to get here, but this is where I am. Almost anything is possible. Then. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. It's a little bit of a diatribe. Sorry about that. No, I love it. I think about this all the time. It's so funny. I When I first started the podcast, people were you know, putting reviews and ratings and stuff like that. And I remember getting like my first review and it was like, this podcast is amazing, you know, or whatever. I was like, oh, that feels so good. And then I got a, I probably have like 10 reviews or something. And they're all like five star, really good. And then I got one three star review and it said, interviews are interesting, but I wish the host would talk less. And that's just like burned in because it's true. It's true. There's many of my interviews. I talk too much, but it's like burned into my head now. Uh, and I get self-conscious anytime. Like right now, I get self-conscious about when I talk too much. So I'll shut up. No, now. I love that. No, I love that. You know, one of my favorite interviews of yours is with Barbara Butler. Yeah. And I think what's important in that interview is not only her wealth, knowledge and expertise, but also like how one of her students has like achieved success by doing the things that she is talking about. So I just, no, I, <laughs> no, that person's wrong. That's like, all right. What you're doing is great. That's man. all right. Um, well, I think if you would, if you're in, into it, we can dig into the meat of the episode. Um, now yeah, that we've sure. got sort of a full picture of the, uh, sort of the brighter side, we can dig into the darker side. Um, when Jarrett reached out to me, uh, he explained that he was a tuba player and that he's a musician, but he also expressed that he has struggled with mental health issues. And uh, there are a lot of people, um, I was saying before I started, probably more people, like someone like me, I think I've struggled with mental health issues. I just didn't know that that's what it was, you know? And so being able to put names to it and people opening up uh, about their struggles and how, the, especially the overcoming or at least the sort of getting a better relationship with those things, I think can be very inspiring and uh, helpful. So I will definitely stop talking for a while. If you kind of want to just give your, whatever the amount of a talk is where you kind of go through it, I would love to listen. And then I might have some questions after you kind of go through it. Yeah, sure. So um, I've had an interesting journey with mental health. And I think um, it all sort of started in my undergrad, and I knew that things sort of weren't 100% right um, when uh, I, started, uh, I started being treated for depression, um, and then was medicated, and sort of that wasn't working, and I just kept being you know, pushed into this like darker, darker space. Um, and it all kind of came to a head about eight years ago um, when I tried to take my own life. Um, and this was sort of, um, it just was the product of things really not going right for a long time. Um, there are so many ways in the world where our perception can become limited. And of course, this is influenced by you know, society, biology, psychology, so many different factors. But what I mean by our perception becoming limited, become limited is that when someone is mentally ill, their view of the world is just so narrow collapsed and dark. It's sort of like, I, I, when I tell this story, I talk about, um, so for example, you're, you're walking down the road, and um, this was, I, I think about it when, I'm at, when I was at New World Miami Beach, and when, you, uh, when you're there, you walk a lot, you, you, where you live and where you work, um, walking to and from 
the hall several times a day, maybe. And the drivers there are just so bad. And several times on this on this walk, you maybe feel like your life is in danger. Um, so not only will people like you know pass by you and maybe hit you or whatever. Um, and I, I talk about a situation like that where you know you're walking down the road and someone almost hits you. And in that moment, you can't think about anything else besides you know like how angry you are at that person or like how creative the swear word can be that you want to hurl at that person or like what the person's face looks like or like what the person's license plate was to maybe call the cops on them. <laughs> and in that moment, like I said, your perception is very, very narrow. And then in an instant, it sort of just disappears. And you, you, a couple minutes later, you might not even realize that it happened. And that's kind of like what it is to live with the mental illness. You know, your perception just sort of becomes so dark and narrow and collapsed. And, you know, even if you have friends and family who are trying to bring you out of that dark place, it's almost impossible to get out. Um, so that's kind of where I was. You know, I was I couldn't see any way out of this very, very dark place. Um, and it wasn't until I tried to take my own life and then went to rehabilitation and got off my medication and saw the world in a light that wasn't influenced by all these drugs and all these, you know, different factors that I got out of this mental illness. Um, and so when I give this talk, I've given this talk at a couple different schools and, and um, and I went down to New World and I gave this talk sort of about suicide prevention and mental health. Um, I try to say, you know, like, I feel like people, when they're listening to this, they might just be like, so why is this too aware of times that try to take this over? Like, what, what does this mean? It's really important to me that people don't feel like they're alone, uh, because that's sort of how it feels like when you're in mental illness. And um, the only way that we can sort of remove the stigma surrounding mental health is by continuing, or starting to talk about it, continuing to talk about it. Um, and I guess, so to answer your question from before, so like, what brings you to be interested in being involved in teaching yoga and being on the crisis hotline and stuff, it's all born out of this. Because I know that there, I mean, I had a really, really good friend um, in my undergrad. He's a horn player. And this person was there for me through it all. And, you know, we sort of lost touch. And I think about very regularly how much that person gave to me. You know, the, the night that it sort of all happened, he was the one who took me to the hospital. He was the one who made sure that I was alive. Um, and I think about if that person wasn't there. And I think about, you know, how bad things could have gotten had he not gotten to and all of this, you know, trying to make people enjoy or see the, the light through yoga and trying to break people out of this place on the, the crisis hotline that I work for, it's all born out of me not wanting people to go down the same road that I did. Because I had the resources at my disposal that I could have taken advantage of to possibly get out of that place. But like I said, because my perception was so narrow, you just you don't you don't see it. You yeah. just can't take advantage of it. And I just you know it's it's all it's all that. It's all you know, I had this really dark time and I just don't want people to go down the same. Okay. That's first of all, thank you. It's I'm I'm you seem to be very comfortable with it, but 
it doesn't make it any less like real or, or easy. So I appreciate you sharing. Before we dig into some of the questions that I kind of want to, I want to ask if someone feels like they're struggling, if they hear in your words and they're already convinced that they are in this place, what should they do? I'll make sure to link all this stuff in the show notes and the blog post, but like, what are the steps people can take to find what you feel like you didn't have or you didn't sure. take advantage I mean, of rather? Of course. So the, the hotline that I work for is actually like, it's a great service that more people should know about. It's a nonprofit organization called Crisis Text Line, where anyone in the world, well, particularly this number that I'm going to give you is U.S. for, for the U.S. specifically, but they're also working in Canada and Ireland. Um, so you can text in to 741741 anytime, day or night, and you'll be connecting with someone who can talk you through any kind of like mental distress or pain. That's the service that I work um, and in addition to that, the, uh, the other service that I um, can talk about is the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. And that's the one, I mean, both very, very similar um, services, but one, the one that I work for is you text in, or you can you know, message them on Facebook or anything, and you talk to someone via text. And the other one is an actual phone hotline where you talk to somebody. Of course, if you're going through any kind of mental distress, you can talk to a doctor, you can talk to a therapist, you can talk to a friend. I mean, there's so many different resources available. But these two resources that I've you know, experienced both firsthand uh, and have worked for both of them are great sort of like um, crisis intervention services. Like if you are having an issue in the middle of the night and all of your friends are asleep and you don't want to bother any of them, these are good ways to talk to somebody. Um, and I think, I mean, I just... I learned about Crisis Sex Line from a TED Talk. Um, Nancy Philbin, who's the CEO, um, she gives uh, a TED Talk sort of about how she started this service. And uh, it's just, like I said, it's just born out of helping people. And that's just their own personal experiences and whatever. But like I said, just, you can take advantage of those two services. But, you know, we can talk about more ways that you can sort of keep yourself mentally happy. But those are the ways that sure. if somebody is dealing with issues right now, that they yeah, sure. So, um, like I said, I'll make sure I link that kind of stuff and get the information from you. So even if you, let's say you feel okay, but you know, people who are struggling and, and they don't, you know, I think people finding places where people are able to help and trained to help is a different situation than, I mean, so here's like, here's a personal experience from me. I was dating, uh, somebody in my life at one point who, uh, was struggling with mental health. Um, and I just didn't know how to help. Right. I had not really had a lot of, I mean, I had struggled in my life, but not on a, on a, on a level, a, a level that I could understand. Um, but B also the thing she was struggling with was not an experience I had shared. It was the loss of a, of a close loved one. And I, and so I, I felt in that moment, I understood the difference between me being a friend and, ta and just like being there, which is very important. But also there are people that are like trained to understand like how to help who've had experiences. And so I think it's that these services are super, super, or whether it's trained or they've just gone through similar things, whatever you want to call training, right? Um, I think it's just important to understand the difference that it's important 
to be there for people that you know are struggling, but also it might not, it might be something that's out of our control or our ability to actually truly help if you're someone like me, I think. I don't know. I don't, you know, I would, I, I don't know if I agree with that. Okay. Because I think that the ability to help somebody and to listen to somebody is maybe difficult for some people, but I think it's just a muscle that needs exercise. And, you know, in this talk that I give sometimes, I give um, tips for people, particularly people who are at a school of music, or people who are, you know, places like New World, ways that you can support your peers. And there's a couple different ways that I, that I give to people that they can, you know, support their peers. The first one is something called active listening. I'm sure that, you know, you've heard of that. I'm sure everyone's heard of that. But there are a couple different ways that you can use active listening to help somebody through, you know, some type of event, you know, that's giving them panic, it's giving them anxiety. So oftentimes when someone's, you know, for example, if I'm like Ryan came in, I'm going through a really, really difficult time right now. Um, oftentimes people just need the space to explore that event themselves. So for example, if I say, hey Ryan, I'm going through a really difficult time, you can say something like, hey, why don't you tell me about that? Or let's go to my apartment and we can talk a little bit more about it. And through active listening, you can get the person to open up more about it and sort of feel less anxious and less sort of panic. Um, there's a couple different parts of active listening. Of course, um, there's a way to paraphrase what they're saying after they sort of talk about a lot of things. And you know, there's a difference between paraphrasing and parroting. So for example, if, if I say, I'm having a really difficult time with a member of my orchestra, you know, they're really giving me a tough time, I'm not sure if I'm getting tenure, et cetera, et cetera. You can say something like, wow, it sounds like work's pretty difficult right now. Why don't you talk to me more about that? And then that just sort of opens up the person to go one level deeper. Instead of being like, it sounds like you're having problems with a member of your orchestra and you're worried about getting tenure, which is exactly yeah. what I said, which shows me that you heard what I said, but that you didn't quite understand yeah. deeply what I said. Um, and of course, that's an, that's an important part of active listening. A couple different other parts of active listening that are important. Of course, eye contact, open body language. But then the most important thing, and the thing that I think a lot of people forget about, is that it's okay if someone says something and you don't say anything wrong. Like, for example, if I say, hey, Ronnie, I'm having a really tough time with this person at work. Um, I'm not sure if I'm going to get tenure. They're giving me a really tough time. If you say nothing, I'll probably keep talking. Mm -hmm. You know, just because... You know, people get really uncomfortable in silence, but if you offer that level of silence and that sort of, you know, openness for someone to keep talking, I'll probably say something like, yeah, you know, there was this one time where, like, I was wondering a lot too, and then I would keep going, and then I would just sort of feel more open with you, and then I think silence really invites, you know, a, uh, the ability to create a safe space, and it invites people to go one level deeper and of course there's other things we can talk about but i think active listening is just so important when you're when you're um, talking to someone like i said i just think it's a muscle that needs to be exercised yeah so to expand upon it because i i think what i struggled with there are two there's two aspects and i would love your opinion the first aspect is my inability i think it was because we were in a relationship that it's different but my inability to be supportive became a barrier because I, I like was supposed to be this person that could be there for her and supportive of her. And I just didn't know what to say. And that leads to the second thing is it's almost as if I felt like 
the things that I needed to say because I wasn't sort of like I hadn't flexed a muscle of active listening. I almost felt like the only thing I could do is either fix it or I'm not going to be able to, I'm not of any use, if that makes sense. So I think that's where I've struggled is this feeling of someone's telling me that they're struggling. And then it's almost as if in my mind, I'm saying, okay, well, they're talking to me because now I need to help. Now I need to fix this. And I think that's like not an anxiety, but maybe just like a barrier for me feeling like I can be there in that space because I don't know if I will be able, even though I know it's not about fixing it, that's like kind of my inner dialogue, so to speak. It's so true. I mean, like, I think when someone's telling someone something, the first thing you want to do is fix it. And that becomes immediately about the stuff. You know, it's about me fixing you. But really, when you were talking to someone, I think it's the, the most important thing to do is to try to get them to see that they have the tools to be able to handle any situation that they're going through on their own. So when I'm on the, the hotline, we go through like 40 hours of training before we go on the, on the shift, which is like obviously understandable because you're dealing with people who are going through severe mental distress. Um, there's sort of two parts to the conversation. The first part is you exploring the precipitating event. So for example, if someone's saying, like, let's use the example from before, hey Ryan, having a tough time with this person at work, I'm scared of my main tenure, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you talk about that event. You use active listening to sort of get to the crux of like what's actually going on. Is the person scared that they're not going to get tenure? Is the person feeling inadequate? Is the person not jogging with their colleagues? Is the person just not enjoying the orchestra life? You know, there's so many things at play. And then the second thing is to collaboratively problem solve. So you look for ways that perhaps that in the past that has worked for this person that the person can use on their own to sort of rectify this situation. And the way to bridge between, you know, exploring and sort of problem solving is oftentimes something that, I mean, I've struggled with in the past because you want to you want to dig into the problem, but you don't want to like dwell. You know, you want to like get to the crux of the problem, but then you sort of want to like be able to move on and like get the person moving in the right direction. So, um, you know, to get to that problem-solving stage, I'll often say something like, um, okay, so we've been talking about this for a while. Now, I want to maybe ask you if there's anything in your past that has worked to solve this um, this issue before. And for example, let's, let's go to this situation that I talked about before with your, with your ex, and she was having a problem with, uh, with death in the family, right? Was, yeah. it, was it family or friend? friend family. Uh, family, family, yeah. Family, yeah. So, I mean, you know, in that situation, you could say, okay, so you explore the situation and then you move to the problem solving. And of course, you know, grief is not something that you solve, you know, but you can talk to them about situations or things that people have done that they've known that have helped them in the past. And realistically, grief is sort of just this thing that heals over time. So in that situation, I would try to get someone to establish what we call, I feel like I hold this term, but what we call sort of this like personal crisis toolkit. And what that means is you're going um, and you're making this sort of like box of things that you go to when you've had a rough day. Um, so for example, if I'm feeling really, or if your ex was feeling that she had a really tough time about um, you know, this, this grief, she would go to these things that bring her happiness. For example, like I've had a really tough day, I do some yoga, I listen to some music, I unwind, with other things, and then those things I just go to and I don't have to think about things that I want to do to take my mind off what has caused me a lot of 
um, problems. So that's often something that I go to right away, um, and that's something that people use to code. It's just a couple things that they have sort of like in their back pocket that you know if you're feeling like you've had a really tough day, you know, and if you don't have access to someone to talk to, then just go to yoga or go to whatever works for you. Um, and the more you know someone, the more you can sort of draw from that per their personal toolkit because you know what's in their toolkit. So you can say like, have you done yoga in a couple of days? Or have you listened to music for a couple of days? Or have you gone for a run in a couple of days? And then that sort of level of sort of intimate connection, I think is what can really ground someone. And they'll be like, wow, this person really understands me. And this person feels so comfortable with me to be able to draw from my toolkit because they know me so well. So, I mean, it doesn't need to be, sometimes the way these conversations go, they can kind of feel like a little artificial because it's like, hey, so like, let's talk about the problem and let's fix it. But really it's about sort of how organic you can make what you're saying. And I think using these things like silence and using these things like paraphrasing instead of parroting are real, really ways that you can just sort of um, make someone feel comfortable without just feeling like they're uh, you're sort of just like, you know, trying to fix them. Yeah, I, 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 it sounds like to me, to paraphrase, um, I, 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 a lot of the examples you've given, it seems to have a lot to do with just lack of control and not, and not knowing what to do. Like for me, I am not in control of her feelings and I don't know what to do. And it seems like this sort of toolkit you're talking about is trying to, it's not just saying do this, it's saying like, you know that you can do this and empowering people to remember that they can make positive, at least headway, not maybe not fixing the issue, but making positive headway towards feeling like they, ha like they possibly have a grasp or some semblance of control over this thing that feels like it's running rampant. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And you know, I think the easiest way to make someone feel in control is just for them to, you know, uh, realize that they can't control things that are variable, you know, and just like realizing what they can control. And oftentimes that's just thinking about something that they can do in the moment to give them comfort. You know, for example, like if I'm feeling a lot of grief, there's nothing that I'm going to be able to do to bring someone back to life. So what can I do right now to bring me peace of mind and comfort? You know, things that I know that make me happy. You know, going for a run, going for a walk, doing yoga, et cetera, et cetera. And the minute that we realize that there are things out there that can bring us that level of comfort, I think is the minute that we realize that we are in control. Yeah. Yeah, I think that one thing that, I mean, just to sort of go out to a bigger sort of level for musicians, I think that one thing that a lot of people especially in our field, deal with is the voice inside our head. And I was talking to someone about this today. It's, um, you know, the voice inside of our head seems like this sort of like omniscient, omnipotent force all the time. It's saying like, oh, you can't do this. Oh, you can't do this job. Oh, you know, you can't do all these things. But realistically, the voice inside of our head is just that. It's not this like force that's like, you know, able to predict the future or anything. Um, I read this book, really, really good book. Um, called The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. Um, and in it, he gives like all these like really tangible ways that we can sort of control this voice inside of our head. And he expresses that the minute that we realize that the voice inside of our head isn't this sort of like all-knowing force, 
is the minute that we sort of gain control of our own minds. So he tells people to assign a persona to the voice inside our head. So for example, if your roommate is telling you, hey, you can't do this job, hey, you can't do anything, hey, you're good for nothing, it's way easier to dismiss your roommate than this omniscient, omnipotent yeah, force. Right. So anyway, I just think that is something that's helped me a lot in the past. And if I'm driving home, I'm like, gosh, you know, you're never going to be good enough to like do all these things on your instrument or whatever. I just say like, who's saying that? Like, who is telling me all these Whoa, things? Right. And it's just this force, you know? I mean, it, to get to go one level deeper, right? Like, we're talking about mindfulness, and we're talking about awareness and uh, to a greater degree just spirituality in general is like what do i identify with and then one of the most interesting things i think uh one ways to put it is in the power of now eckhart tolly tala tolle i can't remember how to say it the intro yeah. of it he's like one day it's it's like kind of dealing with the concept of of what suicide is, is you get to a point where you're like i can't live with myself and he, or I can't live in this space, but he described it as I can't live with myself. And then he had this like realization. He's like, if I can't live with myself, like who is the I that I can't live with? Like he all of a sudden understood this disassociative, like there are two separate things happening here. There is the me and there is the I. And the I is this unchanging, like that is the us, right? But the me is I am like a trumpet player. I play, I live in Alabama. I am married. Like all of these things that are sort of conditionally or situationally dependent and that sometimes get taken away from us. You know, you lose tenure in a job or maybe a spouse passes away or, you know, maybe crazy, whatever. And like those things are transient, but oftentimes we put our identity in those things. And then so when it's taken away, we feel like we have no control over like who we are anymore. Right. Right. And so the eye is so that thing underneath everything that's actually continuing. That's actually who we are. And that's just basically choice. That's like what we, we can choose in any given moment. And sometimes it's harder than others. But and like I think, you know, like spirituality, I'm a Christian. So this fits into it 100 percent. Like if I identify uh, as first and foremost as a Christian, then it's like my identity is, God, is like from God. And it's like not even defined by anything here on Earth. So essentially, this is like where the idea that you know, we're not controlled or there's no idols, right? It's like nothing really is controlling me except for my relationship with God. And that's not here. So yeah. nothing here ideally can bother me, you know? Yeah. I did a double major in philosophy in my undergrad. Wow. And um, so much of this is just like content, you know? So much of it is just like, all of this is just like, why do we exist? Yeah. And the minute that we start thinking about the bigger questions, I think we can start to get out of our own head. And I think that's sort of what all these people are talking about. Just sort of like getting out of the sort of like narrow-minded, sort of what I was talking about before. Right. You know, anything that can bring you to have a wider sense of perception will allow you to just have better mental health in the long run. Well, and that, again, like you described, you're not alone. Much of the philosophy of, you know, like we are all connected to each other. We are all... God's children, we're all like biological life forms. Like there's so many different versions of this idea that we are not actually alone. We are connected, we are more the same, more alike than we are different. And and that um, this feeling of aloneness is possibly just due to, like you were saying, the narrow-minded scope that can easily take over when you get kind of lost in all of the things that you think have to be. And then some of them not turning out to be what you thought or what it, what you think it exactly. needs to be. Yeah. 
yeah. this has been awesome. I kind of want to go really specific and get your opinion on um, mu like the music field, our culture in general. Do you see any some realities of what our field or our culture is that might be contributing to um, mental health becoming worse? Any some sort of approaches we have to what we do and what remedies might exist? Well, okay, so this is something that, this is sort of a work in progress for me because I'm trying to bring sort of all this like empirical um, stuff that I have from my own past and, and then all of this, um, just like all of my experience and just trying to like bring it to like our profession. And I think a big part of like why a lot of musicians, I would argue, are not healthy mentally is because our craft is extremely solitary. It requires so much individual work. And I think because we have to like live in this like analytical sort of like, oh, that like was sharp. Oh, that was out of tune. Oh, that articulation wasn't so great. We're allowing ourselves to like sort of dig in analytically so much. And I think that gets into our lives a lot. So for example, when you get out of the practice room, you're like walking down the street and you're like, oh, could be skinnier, like I could have better hair, like like yeah. that sort of analysis gets into everything. Yeah. I think that's just like part of who we are as musicians. So I think it sort of ties into what you were saying before, and it ties into you know, and I you've talked about this with a lot of different guests, like removing the Ryan trumpet player from like Ryan father or like Ryan human, you know, and being like, okay, so I'm gonna sit down and like work on my trumpet. I'm going to put on my trumpet hat and put on my analytical hat. And I'm going to work on this. And then when I leave, I'm going to put on my human hat. And then I'm going to be a human. And I think there's so much of, I mean, there's so much good in this an analytical uh, part of us that we have. There's so much like that we can gain from sort of analyzing ourselves and being like, what can we do better right now? But I think it, goes too far sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I think that's sort of why people get to a point where they lose control. And I think that's sort of at the crux of what I'm trying to say. I think it's because we have this like very heightened analytical part of us that um, we sort of forget to put in the closet sometimes, if that makes sense. It does. Do you, can I sort of like bounce off of that and-, and Let's go. Okay, so to continue with that thought, cause I've obviously been like, living in this world for a while too of what does it all mean i think that a lot of musicians justify that voice we say it's necessary to achieve the thing that we want to achieve but we're oftentimes not in control of whether we achieve that thing in the long run and so i think there's this sort of disconnect between we feel we have to we are shamed into feeling like we have to spend an inordinate amount of time doing this or either you don't care or there's somebody else that's compared if somebody else is practicing. So we get into this space where it's like, if I'm not in the practice room, I'm not doing enough. And then when we're in the practice room, it's like, okay, how do I get good enough so I can justify all of this work that I'm putting in right now by either winning a job or getting some sort of teaching thing or at least making enough money because I put all of my time and effort into this calling of music and I don't want to go have to work at Starbucks and say I was a failure. I, I feel like the whole culture is actually, instead of like it's all results based and we have to prove ourselves through our efforts, I think if we made one simple shift, which was to think, 
we are all on our journey and success is like a stop along the way, then we just reach it when we reach it and we have a healthier relationship with the work in general because all we're trying to do is just a little bit more than yesterday and not trying to prove to ourselves that we can do it or we're not good enough. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think um, one thing that I can sort of add to that yeah. is that one thing that's sort of proven helpful to me during this, this time is the ability to sort of check in with myself and be like, okay, so am I a better tuba player than I was yesterday? Maybe not. But like I'm moving forward in ways that I feel are productive. You know, what did I do yesterday to make myself more mentally healthy today? You know, I sort of took stock of where I am and I took stock of like um, my personal crisis to look at. I sort of like saw, I looked at those things and I was like, do I need any of those things right now? And if I say no, then I feel like I'm pretty healthy. Um, and just, like I said, being able to check in sometimes. Sometimes also it's really helpful to have someone else check in and be like, Hey, so, um, you know, you might not have a job in Chicago City yet, but that slur was a lot better than it was yesterday. Yeah. And it's, it's all these like little victories, like you said, these sort of like these, these posts that we can put in the ground being like, yes, like, this is something that I did better than I did yesterday. Yeah. And just like sort of like, you know, slowly stepping towards that big goal is just like a series of small goals. Yeah, and the ability to sort of check in, I think, is just something that is very um, uh, emblematic of someone who is healthy mentally. I think. Yeah, I I would say too. I think Brene Brown talks about this. I could be wrong, but the difference between striving and perfection. Like striving is an admirable goal. Perfection is not necessary, right? It's like we, but we think perfection is the goal. When I had this realization a while back that. Perfection, if perfection is the goal, I just have a bad relationship with trying to get there, right? Because I'm never going to be perfect. But if I'm striving, if I'm striving to do it, then like it might be a struggle for me, but all other people see is that I'm doing it. And so striving kind of has the effect we want it to have. And we just have to get over this hurdle of whether it's hard or easy or whatever. So then striving is like, okay, well, who do I want to be? What kinds of things do I want? And I'll start striving towards those and not worry so much about being perfect, just trying to learn either like have a success or learn a little bit about how to have sex to success tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like I said, it's all like, you know, life is a, a journey. Not a yeah. Yeah. Sort of like, there's a million ways to spin this, but I think it's all just the ability to like make small, uh, small incremental success or small incremental progress is going to be the people, or is going to be um, contributing to the people who have the most success in the long run. And I just like it's proven, you know, successful for me. It's I, you know, when I was at New World, I saw you know the people who put in the work every day and the people who like were aware of the progress that they were making. Those were the people who were the most successful in the long run. Those are the people who made, you know, great, you know, job wins and stuff like that. And you know, sometimes it's not about that. Sometimes it's about because you know, winning a job is so difficult. And it's not about sometimes it's not about the best player. You know, I would argue that like the best player oftentimes wins an audition, but sometimes it's about the player that fits in the best right. that in, you know in that section or the best work or in that orchestra best. Yeah. Um, so ultimately, I think it's just about um, 
can we be the best version of ourselves instead of being this like you know best objective trumpet player, this best objective tuba player, um, and that is part of you know what we were saying before is striving. I'm striving to be the best version of myself. All right, I have one more question. And this is how my brain works. And I want you to like, you don't have to answer it right away. You can have like a second of silence if you wanna to try to reflect. We are not the first people to talk about this, right? There are countless, countless resources out there. And we've been hearing success is not a journey or success is about the journey, not the destination. And we've heard like, you know, we, there's, like I said, there's mindfulness books out there. and. There's just practices that like things like yoga, like all of this stuff is supposed to be to help us have better relationships with ourselves and hopefully then results in uh, a healthier mental space. Why is there an epidemic of mental health? Do people not think, in your opinion, do people not think it applies to them? Have they not heard the message? Do they not understand the message well enough? Like, what do you think is the reason, even if it sounds trite to say success is about, or, you know, life is not a destination like even though these are out there like why do we still have such a struggle with it when the resources are out there you know i think people just like don't really i it goes back to what i said before about the perception you know sometimes we get so locked in to our world and our life that we don't think that we have mental health issues. I think a lot of people don't think they struggle with mental health, but I think so many people in our world do. And until we sort of make that proclamation to ourselves that, hey, like, I had a tough day and I need some help, that we're going to continue to struggle with. And like I said before about active listening and sort of talking to people, um, all of these things are muscles that need to be exercised. And I think the minute that we realize that, you know, it would benefit a lot of us, I would say maybe even all of us, to have that toolkit of things that if we've had a difficult day that we can go to and that we can sort of call on to sort of bring our morale up, I think that would sort of allow people to live happier and, you know, healthier lives. Because I think it's just an acknowledgement. I think it's just a lot of people think that maybe the mental health piece doesn't apply to what you just said. But what's really important, I think, is just to have, you know, be able to say, like, this was a really difficult day, and I need something right now. I need to call my friend. I need to call my, my parent. I need to, whatever, do, the, do those things. And the minute that we, you know, sort of admit to ourselves that getting help is okay, I think that is the moment that... Um, most of us become more healthy mentally, if that yeah. makes sense. I mean, this is just such a broad topic. Well, like you well, said, so, so many people talk about this. So the next question I have then, I, I lied, I have more questions, is <laughs> semantics matter in this case then, right? Because we, when I think of mental health, I think of suicidal tendencies, like schizophrenia, like these major major things people deal with but in the way you're describing it even just having like a rough day and sort of not being in a good space could be under the umbrella of mental health and so i wonder if people who struggle with mental health related things or mental health illnesses and stuff maybe it's like on a spectrum of severe and not severe but the same tools will help everybody 
Maybe some people yeah. need it a little bit more, or maybe some people need a little bit more help, but these tools of like what's in your kit that's gonna help you is gonna help, it, it, like mental health extends past the severe things into like, man, I'm just really pissed off right now because of this thing, or I'm worried I'm going to lose my job, or I feel like I have no control over the outcome of this. I need, like, I feel like I need something. Right. I feel like, you know, just kind of thinking about, well, when you were talking, just kind of uh, thinking about most people, I think most people, you know, take more control of their mental health than they do. You know, for example, a lot of people find a lot of solace in working out. You know, and I think that, you know, working out is a great way to, you know, it's your endorphins, it's your overall happiness feel better about yourself. But, and a lot of people think that, you know, working out is a very important part of sort of their daily regimen or weekly regimen. And, you know, if you asked a bunch of people at a gym, are you healthy mentally? You know, they'd be like, go away. Like, what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, but I think what it comes down to is that, you know, we all have ways to take care of ourselves. And, whether or not those people are healthy mentally or going through mental stress, like I'm not sure if that really matters in the long, in the long run. You know, whether we, we put a name to it, but it's just ultimately important for us to take care of ourselves. And I think most people do. I think most people have a couple of things in the back of their mind that if they've had a tough day or are going through a tough time, that they'll do. But it comes down to, like, you know, if you're having a rough go, will you be able to know that you're having a rough go enough to call on those things that make you happy? And I think, you know, keeps going back to this toolkit that I, that I keep talking about. You don't have to think about this, you know, toolkit of things that make you happy because it's sort of already there. And if you sort of have the awareness to be like, I had a bad day, you also have the awareness to be like, okay, well, you know, it's time to do something to boost my experience. It's time to like, take a step away from the um, So whether or not, to, to answer your question, whether or not most people know that they need some type of you know, you know, mental health attention or they need some help, I think most people in reality just need to take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. and, and we don't need to address this sort of like mental health epidemic. We just need to teach people how to care for themselves. And that's sort of like, that I feel like it's hard for me to say. It's like there's a stigma around taking care of yourself, which is ridiculous. It's like during, and this is particularly heightened during this period, and this is kind of like a, a bit of a bugaboo for me right now, in that I see a lot of teachers and people going online and telling students, like, it is important that you be as productive as you can right now, so that when this is all over, you are the best X player on your instrument and you can win every job and like be the best player or whatever. Like that is so destructive for some people because some people will literally drive themselves into the ground with how productive they can be. And some people are already practicing four hours a day. They don't need to be practicing eight hours a day. So saying that I think needs to be sort of, um, you know, people need to take that with a grain of salt because I think a lot of people, especially people who are listening to this podcast who like want to listen to podcasts and like become better people are probably doing everything they can to be better musicians right now. And I think it's important to also say like, you know, we don't know when this is going to end. We, like, 
could go on for another couple of months, like even longer than that. So it's more about striving to, to be better every day than trying to be the best, you know, trumpet player, that's to a player right now, and to be like the most employable musician. So sorry, I, no. I sort of got a bit on a pedestal right there, but I, think it's I just great. you know I see these. I see these people telling students to just like drive themselves into the ground right now. And I just, I know so many people that it's just not right for them. So I've actually been with the clients I work with, uh, we, the way we structure, especially the first month, I've actually been encouraging them that this is a perfect time to actually step back and to sort of wreath, like to sort of address these things that in the middle of the grind sometimes get looked over, you know, I got to learn this piece. I got to like play this concert. I got to study for this, this test or whatever. And like, now we have this time where we're on nobody else's clock and we can say, well, what do I need right now as a player? Like, what have I, how have I been like looking over certain aspects that need to be brought up so that I can be a holistically better player? Not just like I practice more so that I can convince like all of what we're talking about, just for me to sum it up, it's not about being successful on other people's terms. It's about you defining success and then you fulfilling that and getting and then success, you know, what determines success can grow over time. It doesn't necessarily have to be the same one year from now as what it is now, but you get to determine what success looks like for you in terms of practice, in terms of productivity, in terms of mental health, like you get to determine that. And I think we just get into this comparative space and our culture, our work hard, like culture of you can do it, you don't pull up your bootstraps. I think it has some merit, but as you described, it can be destructive uh, for people who either it's not good for or that's not what they need. They actually need to calm down for a second and reassess if what they're doing is even the right thing. Yeah, and so much of like what you just talked about, sort of what we've been talking about can be, it, it just falls under the umbrella of mindfulness. Um, and I, I wanted to bring up one example of, uh, so of course I've gone through like a lot of meditation training with yoga teacher training, but also I need to say that Warren Deck is like, one of the best meditators that I've ever met. And Warren Deck might not be the person that you think might be a very good meditator, but that man knows. And he doesn't think he knows a lot about meditation, but whenever you talk to him about it, it's like, mm. oh, this guy is a delight. Yeah. <laughs> so the way, that he's, the way that he sees meditation, and just like to quickly surmise sort of what he's talking about, is that when he's doing these meditation exercises, he does this exercise called just sitting. So it's not a big deal, he's not closing his eyes, he's not like, you know, breathing in ways that are, um, you know, that different than the way he breathes normally. He views sort of his position in this just sitting exercise as he's sitting by a river. And if he has these thoughts sort of come into his head, they're sort of like these leaves in a river. And this river is passing by, and he's sitting by the river, and he's picking up each leaf individually, and he's sort of examining it. And then, you know, after examining it for two or three seconds, he puts it back into it and it keeps flowing. And I think a lot of people have trouble with meditation because they're like, oh, I have to clear my mind. Like, it is important that I don't think about anything right now. And I hate to bring it to you, but <laughs> unless you're like this super like Buddhist monk, I don't think clearing your mind is actually possible. I mean, I've tried it a lot. It's not possible. <laughs> You know, outside of a couple seconds, like anybody can not think about something for a few seconds, but then you're going to think about not thinking about things, and then you're going to think about hunger for lunch, and then you're going to think about yeah. what we're going to have for lunch and stuff. So, meditation is just about interacting with the thoughts and 
you know, interacting with thoughts in a more healthy way. And I just think that you know, the, the sort of another way to you know metaphor for for these you know how to interact with thoughts when you're meditating is clouds passing by. You know, you're looking at cloud, examining sort of the, the structure of the cloud, and then you look at a different cloud where you stop from the clouds. Period. And learning how to sort of interact with your thoughts outside of meditation is just like a great tool to have if you're having a really sort of like busy mental day. You can have a lot on your mind. You say, oh wow, like, you know, that audition's coming up in four weeks and I need to, you know, work on a couple things. But, you know, I'm going to interact with that thought right now and I'm going to let it pass on. Yeah. And I just think that's, that like working <laughs> on that piece as a musician right now is so important because it's something that like, so many of us struggle with. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah, that's so cool. Um, I really appreciate your time. And this was, a, for me, this was a fantastic conversation. I had a great time. Yeah, it was a blast. Yeah. Thanks for having Thank me. you for reaching out and offering to tell your story. And I hope that, um, I hope that people can be uh, encouraged, really. I mean, I'm sure there's help on the other end of, but just encourage that it's like, and there's, you can empower yourselves or there are tools out there that can help you find how to empower yourselves to feel like there are things we can control and operating within that sphere seems to create a healthier mind space altogether. Yeah. If, well, if people are thinking to themselves, Jarrett blew my mind, I got to tell him, is there any way that people can get, can get in touch with you? Yeah, so you can uh, reach out to me. Uh, my website is just my name.com. My email and contact information is on there, or Facebook, Instagram. Anything is just my name. So, Jared, of course. Uh, and I would love to hear from people. If anybody has any questions or just wants to talk about mental health in general, just feel free to reach All right. And if you need to get in touch with me, uh, as always, you know how to do it, but it's that's not spit.com. Uh, at That's Not Spit at Facebook and Instagram. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, learned something, uh, had any feelings at all, if you want to leave a rating and a review on iTunes, that'd be pretty cool. And uh, don't forget to share this on social media so others can find it as well. I would like to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. And most of all, I would like to thank, well, I don't think I thanked you. Thank you one more time, Jarrett, for your time. I think I thanked you a few times, but just to make sure that I did thank you in case I forgot. Uh, <laughs> and most of all, I'd like to thank you guys for listening. Always remember, stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing, and we'll see you next time.